Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Scott Luton and Greg White here with you on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. Gregory, how are we doing? I'm doing quite well. Are we sure this is going to air in the morning? We're, uh, what if it's afternoon? We're close to sure, at least in the okay. third of the globe. Like right? two but o'clock hey. in the morning, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great point. So for folks, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are tuned in from. But we got a great show. episode here today. Wonderful conversation. We're going to be featuring Greg, a supply chain leader, doing big things in industry. You ready for today's show? I am. I love it when we get to get practitioners on the air with us and hear what the heck is really going on out there. That is right. And we've got uh, a big truckload of uh, been there, done that here today as we welcome in our friend Nabil Maluli, Senior Vice President, Global E-Commerce with DHL. Nabil, how you doing? Hey, Scott. Good. Good to be here. Hey, Greg. Good to see you. Hey, welcome aboard. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me. So great to see you again, Nabil. We were talking pre-show. Uh, uh, we collaborated a bit about a year or so ago on a, on a neat uh, a neat virtual event. And I'll tell you, you're a rock and roll star at that event, as I recall. And it's great to have you here with Greg and I on Supply Chain Now. So welcome in. Um, all right. So, Nabil, before we get into the heavy lifting and we get into your uh, thought leadership on what's going on across global business, I want to give folks a chance to get to know you a little bit better, right? So tell us one of our favorite questions I always lead off with is, where did you grow up? And give us some anecdotes from your upbringing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up in, uh, in the southeast of France. Um, I'm from a, a, an immigrant family from Morocco. So I, I grew up you know, in France um, up to the time I was 22. And then I moved into different countries for the last 18 years years um you know it's it's funny i think the my childhood was really marked by this uh, living in this dual environment and dual culture between my my moroccan background and my french you know lifestyle as i was as i lived there and um, i think it really shaped me today on the way also i work and the way i think about the world and uh and the fact that I also enjoy to work with a lot of people from different places, and, and I get the chance to do that every day. So it um, really comes from that from that early childhood experience up to today. I, I love to work with people from different countries, and, and I think it's, it's a big part of my education. Hey, uh, Greg, I'm so jealous. Uh, just having gotten on Nabil a little bit and now hearing him talk about his background, um, it's such a great advantage and enjoyable advantage over so many other folks that grow up in just, you know, kind of one one neck of the woods, right? Yeah, I think it's it's important to have those global experiences. And when you get to have them almost without leaving home, it's really incredibly valuable. You get to see kind of your home, your whatever you want to call it, original culture, I guess, and your adopted culture. And then to get to work in so many countries is is incredible to be able to understand the cultures of, of so many different parts of the world, right? I think in America, it's so vast. We, the best we can do is state to state, <laughs> you know, everybody speaks English, nobody has a passport. 
that kind of thing. <laughs> no, it's not that it's not that bad. That that would be a that would be probably what someone that lives in Europe might think about the US, but it's not it's not the, that case actually. Not really. quite. Yeah. But, but exactly. indeed, indeed, I think the the in today's world, it's it's so important to be um, you know tolerant and understand the differences. And one thing that I really loved um, in in working across different cultures is actually every culture has very powerful strength, you know. And so if you're able to pick the best of each one of them, you can actually really find like, you know, from, you know, from the way you behave to your personal finance, the way you raise a family, the way you work, the discipline, you know, so there are these stereotypes which are oftentimes true um, and that have relevance, but if you can pick and choose the best, mm. you know, it's kind of yep. picking the best uh, football team or, or whatever you uh, you can, you can, you know, just select the best of, of everywhere. I yeah, love that. Well said. Well, very well said. And and coming here from the last person ever picked for kickball teams, uh, that was Aww. not that was not where my talent was in the bill. But <laughs> along those lines, one quick follow up question: uh, as we're talking about uh, kind of your global view and your your upbringing and whatnot, let's talk food for just a second. Uh, what dish was inseparable from your childhood? I, I mean, the options are endless. And as you're painting kind of your upbringing, we had talk food. So what's one dish that uh, you really enjoyed as a kid? Well, my, my mom, she, it's, and it's funny because it's definitely not an American uh, dish, but my mom, she, she does some lasagna, which are like amazing. And uh, she does it really her own way. You know, it's, uh, I mean, it looks like a regular lasagna, but the taste and the way she does the, the meat inside and so on, it's, it's, it, was, it was my favorite. It's still my favorite whenever I go my mom, she always will prepare. Uh, Love that. Uh, all right. So you had us there. Um, and I'm also hearing you to uh, a, a nice invitation to break bread with you and your mom over a nice uh, pot or, or a dish of lasagna soon. So we'll do it next. We'll do send this us next the time. address. We'll be yeah. right there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. that's right. You'll, you'll be welcome. Believe me, anybody that goes to my mom's place is happy. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. All right. So Nabil. Uh, we got to get, we got to stop my brain thinking about uh, homemade lasagna, which is just, just delicious. Let's, let's kind of start taking some baby steps toward the center dish of what we're going to be talking about here today. We're going to get your thoughts on a variety of, of trends, impacting, shaping global supply chain, a lot more really. For level setting purposes, let's talk about, you know, tell us about what you do at uh, DHL and your role there. Yeah, so um, I'm responsible to build the strategy and to build all the product development of our fulfillment and last mile delivery operations that are servicing e-commerce clients. That goes from the like of very large marketplaces up to brand and retailers. And we operate you know, across, uh, in, in this line of business, we operate in more than 25 markets um, with more than 200 e-fulfillment a operations uh, that are servicing all, all kinds of scale of, of companies. And my role is really to build the, the continuous improvement and next generation of technology, automation, robotics that we need to put in place in order to remain you know, uh, best in class and, and keeping improving the supply chain of our customers, which ultimately for all of us means my job is to do everything I can to get your product faster, cheaper, and with a better experience. That's that's what we do every day. But Greg, what business does not need uh, Nabil looking out for them like that, right? Well, I th yeah, I think it's interesting because 
especially in the last couple of years, e-commerce has become so prominent, right? And it was growing at a pretty rapid rate even before the pandemic. We're starting to see some of the result of people actually being able to leave their homes in the first half of this year. So I'm curious. I mean, if I think we're all pretty aware, Nabil, of, of how e-commerce has changed over the last couple of years. I bet you have some intricacies that people don't know yet. But if you expand that span to maybe the last five years, tell us a little bit about that, that glacial shift by comparison now, to, uh, along with the rapid shift that's occurred in the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. So I think if you go, you know, back five years, right, we were really starting to see uh, that the accelerated adoption of e-commerce. I think, you know, even if you look at the curve of growth, uh, even pre-COVID, we were continuing to see more and more companies, um, digitally native companies being very successful, um, large organizations acquiring companies that that were really digitally native um, companies. And we were seeing also a lot of organizations shifting towards either building their own marketplaces. You know, many of the traditional retailers were opening also their own marketplaces. And companies really trying to focus around enabling the sales, the digital sales channel to a larger extent, right? Being by omni-channel strategies or by doing partnerships and so on. I think in the last two years of, um, you know, if we go back to the beginning of COVID, one thing that I think has been uh, a different, um, a, I would say, or an accelerated shift even more is more around the, the way, for example, around social commerce, right? So if you look between, you know, February, March, you know, when the, the pandemic really hit the US, in like in the following six to nine months, you saw like from Google shopping to, to, um, to Instagram, to Pinterest, to Snap, to, um, to TikTok, all of them, enabling um, the e-commerce functionalities to be able to do uh, shopping directly embedded into the social uh, uh, social media experience. I think that's definitely not something new, right? I mean, I lived in China for four years before the US and in China, a, a social commerce is, is um, I would say, uh, a method or a channel that is existing already for like seven or eight years to a very large scale. Uh, but in, in the US or in Latin America, or even in Europe, it was still not that uh, relevant, and it's it's getting more and more relevant relevancy into the into the business. I think the the other thing is every every time I speak to a client, particularly the large organizations, they tell me this is a priority for them, you know. And um, it was something that was important before, but you will not hear the same type of statement than the ones you you hear. I was on a customer call just earlier today. You know, and um, very large consumer company, they told us they want to double their revenue online in the next three years, right? And so that type of ambitious goals, that type of really, this is a key focus for growth, um, is something that I think was starting to happen, but really became, you know, a reality during the last two years. Mm. And you see also companies really walking the talk now when it comes to investments and how serious they are about this, which I think before it was not necessarily that, you know, that true. Everybody was was conscious that it was good for investor community and for quarterly report to talk about that. But at the end, many companies were not doing that much because it was still a marginal 
uh, growth generator for these companies. Um, right. And I think that has that has changed. It is a priority now. I think that's the major difference. So uh, that's re- it's interesting because um, I recall working with companies ages ago when e-commerce effectively started. Well, I don't want to go back that far. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> I mean, because if I mean, if we really think about it, e-commerce took off in the mid '90s, right? It really started in the mid '90s, and it took it, as Scott and I love to say, twenty years to become an overnight success. Um, but but it really started to come into its own as some of the bigger retailers recognized it as a legitimate alternative or additional channel for their store-based marketplace. So. What do you think is really driving? Obviously, the pandemic drove a tremendous amount of growth. Some of that is going to be reclaimed, and I think by in the stores or in person commerce. But what do you think is overall driving the e commerce growth over time, both from a consumer maybe and and from a um, retailer standpoint? Well, I think the adoption is driven by two really two elements. One is technology, and the second one is consumer. Uh, um, preferences, right? In, if we talk about technology, for example, today mobile commerce um, is more than fifty percent in, in in most of the categories. Um, and even if you look at like even at like Black Friday or Cyber Monday, what you find is is a lot of the orders in the last two years, for example, came in between five and seven p.m which is basically the time, you know, when people come from work or they have like some dead times and so on and that they are on, maybe on their phones. But if they have kids, they are not, these are definitely not dead times. But but um, <laughs> but it's, it's the time where people would be browsing on their, on their mobile and pushing transactions and so on. But mobile commerce, a, 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 you know, the enablement of smartphone has been a major enabler. A, a, today, most of the transactions or the highest part of transactions are done on mobile devices. And that actually, it's expected to continue to grow up to, you know, production says that we'll get to 70% probably of what you would see in the next couple of years in terms of like transactions. So that that is one. I think the, the one that is my favorite that very few people talk about is the, the intelligence of data gathering from consumer preferences in being able uh, to push advertising or to push hyper-targeted products to you as an individual in a much smarter way than what was possible 10 years, 12 years ago is a major driver. Mm. The use of psychographic data point to know what, you know, we talked about hobbies. I'll probably get some advertisement about lasagna as we close this call and that I go, uh, you know, uh, on, online. But um, this is, I think, is a major topic uh, of how upsell, how companies are actually enabling, you know, also this consumer targeting that is actually making us buy more stuff that in some cases we don't really need. Um, and especially, you know, now we see it also through um, a social commerce, right? You look at uh, at some of the companies, for example, Shane is a very good example of that, of a success that is primarily driven through social commerce and through the ability of really pushing products to a relevant audience. Is that, uh, Nabil, is that Shane, the, uh, the jewelry company? No, Shane, the the Chinese fashion apparel. Oh, okay, I got you. I got you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah which is now the the fastest, you know, uh, fashion and apparel company worldwide, um, and it's one of the most downloaded app in the US, an example. 
Um, so that you know that shows the power of understanding the consumer and the channel and how do you push product to to hyper targeted audience that that are going to respond to uh, to that type of advertising. And I think from the consumer preference, of course, you know there are differences between regions or countries or or, or cultures around a how we buy, but ultimately we all want convenience, we all want choice, and we all want, um, and convenience means different things for different people, but we all want convenience, choice, and we want good prices, right? And so the ability to to, to navigate products online obviously open the amount of possibilities you have, choices, you're not limited to any brand or any specific geographical location. And that I think is something that this combination makes you know, we'll continue to push the channel, you know, and I like a, a famous quote that uh, Bezos uh, made, which is, um, you know, focus on what is not going to change, right? And if you focus on what is not going to change, people will want cheaper products, they will want more choice, and they will want stuff most likely faster. You know, mm -hmm. I, that is just the reality of how, you know, the growth will continue. And I think you mentioned something, Greg, just that I want to, to highlight is today when you read the media, you see a lot of bad news around online sales channel and so on. But the, the truth is when you look at the underlying numbers, yes, there is a certain level of sales that is going back to brick and mortar, but we are simply going back to the path, the growth path that we had before COVID. Mm. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, no, it, right. all, it all depends on expectation, but this is not a bad thing. You look at the results of Shopify, of Amazon and so on, this, 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 these companies, they give you really a sense of, of what is happening in terms of transactions also. And we see it also across the business on this, the customers we serve. It is not a bad picture. Even if, if when you read the media, you can get distracted by, yeah, growth is slowing down. I mean, who could expect growth to remain at 70% compared to last, you know, compared to last year when, when we were in the middle of the pandemic, there was government incentives, the government was printing money. Nobody could travel. People were buying stuff because they could go nowhere. I mean, you know, there is there is a bit of a, of a really have to take the numbers with a bit of consideration around that as well. Yeah, I think I think e-commerce growth is slowing only in comparison to the last couple of years, as you said, Nabil, when people were forced to use it to buy just about anything. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm curious uh, where you think we might settle in terms of e-commerce growth. I don't think it'll go back to the rate even that it was before the pandemic. I think even though it's gonna slow versus last year and the year before, I think it will still be growing at a rate that is greater than prior to the pandemic. So I'm curious what you think on that. And then anything else you see, I think you kind of alluded to this, over the next five years in terms of e-commerce, what do you think, uh, where do you think we'll be when we wake up five years from now? Yeah, so I think, um I think we're going to continue to see the trend, you know, around the, the 12, 15% growth year on year in, in the macho markets. Um, there will be outlier categories, maybe some categories will grow more, but I'm talking generally. Um, I think the two things that I think are going to be uh, big enablers of, of that growth and that will continue to, to push um, the path of e-commerce towards becoming a bigger and bigger channel for companies is in, number one, the social commerce aspect, and I talked a bit about that, I think is a major driver. Mm -hmm. You 
will see more and more embedded shopping experience where people are browsing, right? I mean, even Spotify launched embedded functionalities for shopping within Spotify. So wherever you consume your content, your movies, your your, um, your entertainment, you will have shopping functionalities that are going to become more and more embedded into the experience where it's easy. And we are still quite early actually in that journey. When you look at the experiences so far, they are not that well they are not that well done yet, but it's coming. And so yep. I think you're going to see more and more of that. Hey, really quick, Nabil, can I can I offer up a, a quick example of the, yeah. of the point you just made? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we're back in the movie theaters. Greg, you and I have both have enjoyed Top Gun 2. You've enjoyed it like, I think, four times. <laughs> I, I've, I've yeah. seen it once and it's really good. But folks, do y'all, do y'all notice on the front end, uh, at least the one theater I was in, part of a big a big chain, they're, they're, they're promoting their... Um, their MVP program, for lack of a better phrase. So trying for that transaction as you're sitting there and you know eating the, the delicious popcorn, drinking the 64-gallon uh, Diet Coke, but getting you to make that transaction to be a big part, uh, you know, bigger part of their model and community right there as you're sitting at the movie theater on the front end, to your point, Nabil. You can transact wherever you are these days. There, there's always a play. There's always an opportunity, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, I think what we'll what when we talk talk about social, also think about this. These are people you have an affinity for. You watch their content all the time, and they're pitching you things. That's not uncommon. It it goes all the way back um, to the old days of radio. Mm-hmm. Good day um, when when radio used to roll right into what they called a live promo. The the speaker would would just be speaking, and then they would roll right into a commercial for something you almost didn't even know it was right. a commercial, right? And and I think people have brought that to social media. Sometimes it's pretty blatant pitching, but other times it's, hey, we use this to do this thing that you have interested interest in. If you're a hiker or sailor or softball player, whatever it is, you know, we use these things in in these shows. It's kind of like product placement in the movies mm. um, and some other, you know, and some other aspects of it. And I think you uh, definitely that sort of affinity marketing is 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 going to grow for sure. You know, Excellent yeah, point. Great. That is a great uh, call out. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think aside of this, you obviously, um, again, independent of what you, you might think from, uh, um, from what you can read in the media and so on, but cross-border e-commerce is increasing. There's more and more trade actually that is done, you know, online across border. So uh, people are buying cross-border because they have access to products that they don't have in their own markets. Um, you see companies that have shifted, you know, like Nike with uh, an expectation of going 50% direct to consumer. Obviously, mm-hmm. it, these are some of the signals also into the industry that are going to push other companies to, to follow. Um, and also there is a, an entire area of the business also that we don't talk a lot about, but the B2B e-commerce side of, of the story is also very relevant. Today, most of the businesses um, still operate on traditional model of, of ordering and so on. Um, and that's changing, right? I mean, you have now options that are pretty good where you don't need to carry inventory for a month for three weeks. You know, you can, you know, if you're a restaurant, hotel and so on, you can buy them online through specialized platforms and so on. And I think that's going to also drive more and more adoption towards the channel. I think the, the interesting question is where does this land in a country like the US? I personally believe that we will get to that 50% of, 
of, of sales that is online. You know, what's the time horizon? It's always hard to say, but I think we'll eventually land there uh, uh, at some point. All right. Uh, we've touched on a lot already. Uh, I want to, um, and Greg, I can't believe before we talk uh, reverse logistics and returns, um, I thought for sure, as we teed up that last segment talking about kind of the age of e-commerce, that you didn't say it's not e-commerce anymore. It is just commerce. It's just how it's it done is. here. <laughs> it is just commerce. That's right. a really good point. I, I, and I well, think it's yours. I'm just, I'm, I'm recycling it, Greg. <laughs> oh, I made a really good point. Thank you, Scott, for sharing that. Yeah, no, I think we have to look at it that way. Part of the foundational problem, one of the issues or challenges with e-commerce is that I'm going to hearken back to Staples. They built an entirely separate company to manage e-commerce because if you think about it, I mean, and this is a history lesson that may or may not be of any value, but when they were primarily a store operation, the store operations people didn't want their bonus diluted by this new upstart that was unprofitable, a kind of a test bed. They didn't want their, their bonus diluted by this new e-commerce thing. So they built separate enterprises effectively wow. for this. And I think a lot of those companies are starting to blend those together or hopefully have. Macy's has, believe it or not, I've got something good to say about Macy's. Macy's has, and it's, and it's accrued to their benefit. I think there are going to be some surprises, uh, Nabil, for instance, uh, manufacturers like Nike, they make their huge margins based on volume. And now my daughters all have and can customize a pair of shoes, whatever colors, extra stripes, whatever the heck they want, and order that from Nike one at a time. And a lot of those manufacturers are not built for direct to consumer. Mm. It's going to dilute their earnings. And it's going to be interesting to see how far companies like that will take it. I don't disagree that we'll be 50% probably e-commerce and on-prem. I wonder with certain companies and ultimately their shareholders will determine what they value in terms of the amount of uh, distributed sale versus direct-to-consumer sale yep. Um, yep. because it is undoubtedly more costly. And I'm, mm. I'm curious as we kind of talk about this and, and the next five years, are there specific issues or challenges that jump out to you, Nabil, that we ought to be on the lookout for maybe managing toward today? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, actually I got the chance to be in one of these factories in Vietnam uh, just before COVID where they do the uh, the hyper-customization. So it's a, it's yeah. a very interesting process. Indeed. Cool, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, amazing. You see it's it's almost like a, an art piece that is being built by, by really like, it's, it's unbelievable. Well, Nabil, are, are there a lot of customers ordering extra stripes for their sneaks as Greg suggested? Is extra <laughs> stripes all the rage these days? Well, I didn't see that, but uh, but maybe they are. <laughs> so you're talking about your visit there uh, in in the factory. Please continue. Yeah, no, Sorry. no, you know, just 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 showing that. Yeah, this these are the type of models where you know if you if you take that example, you need you have you paying a premium for that, right? So there are products where you can actually do that, and there is there is space to make money and there is space to do to to do that type of business uh, uh, without diluting margins, but. I think to to the second part of the question, Greg, which is I think um, very interesting, is we've seen an evolution also of the way of thinking of um, a, how important the profitability aspect of this type of businesses is within the overall you know growth path, right? Because there are a lot of companies 
that were really focusing on growth um, you know, with, with a vision that at some point you'll be able to make money. And I think mm-hmm. today what we see is there is really a bigger focus around how do you actually um, a, how do you actually make this business profitable? And it is not only about logistic costs. It's also about how much, how do you manage returns? It's also the type of returns policy you're giving. It's the type of service level expectations you're setting up. And if you're trying to go and compete head to head with Amazon, might not be your best strategy, right? In certain cases, you might want to look for other paths to differentiate yourself. And some companies, they do a really good job at this. And so how do you partner with other organizations in order to make the model viable? And it is not over, look, the e-commerce channel is not a profitable channel. It is also a completely wrong statement. There are companies that are making a very good amount of money that have very profitable online channels, and they actually have pretty good conditions to the consumer experience and, you know, and returns policy and so on. But they've built, they've built this over the years. This is not an, uh, also something that you can just say, you know, oh, look, um, you know, we're going to do this, it's going to take one year or two, and then we'll be set up. It is a continuous evolution. I think just going, you said something that I, I really just want to go back because I think it's very important, particularly for the people like me, that we are with clients and we are with people every day that are actually doing this work. There is this whole thing around omni-channel exists for 20 years and, and, and you know, the age of e-commerce is over, it's commerce and all this. My take on this, this is like consultant talks, right? This is literally consultant talk. The reason why I'm saying this is because when you work with these organizations and you see the complexity of how do you deal with people that are looking after their quarterly bonus, their monthly results, their yearly results, the dynamic of technology landscape, um, the dynamic of, of silo thinking in many organizations mm-hmm. and so on, or most of the organizations out there, um, you really understand why actually it is not yet just commerce. And right. we are not anywhere close to just be commerce. So you, 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 you're absolutely right. Like you, you were talking already about this wave of now people are looking at taking that e-commerce away and really integrating both businesses, right? You talked about Macy's, Target does a, a, a fantastic job at this. Yes. example. I think there are companies out there that do a fantastic job uh, um, to, at that, but there are not so many. There are still so many companies that have a real challenge around truly embedding the, the experience. But let's talk about uh, now, Nabil, that you kind of... Uh, um, uh, segued us into what our dear friend Tony Schroeder, who leads the Reverse Logistics uh, Association, he's he's been calling uh, the reverse logistics and the return side the dark side of industry for, for probably 20, 20 years. Uh, in fact, he was just in NPR the other day uh, talking about it. Um, so let's talk about reverse logistics and especially returns. So, Nabil, if you could weigh in, you know, Greg and I, we're certainly familiar with a variety of the challenges that retailers have with returns, but from your your point of view, what do you see some of the challenges you know, beyond the IKEA story, um, beyond the policy side? What are some of those challenges facing retailers and how can we mitigate and overcome those challenges? Yeah, absolutely. So you have, so return is becoming critical because the scale it has today, you know? So that's kind of like situation where you had a, a $5 million problem and you're a large company, it's okay. But when that $5 million becomes $100 million, then you start to have the attention. And that's exactly where we are. Last year yeah. in the US alone, there was more than $700 billion 
uh, uh, value of GMV being returned, right? So it gets to a scale and size where it's a, a problem. On 700 the- billion. I hear you're right there. Goodness gracious. Yes. Um, at the same time, this is something that um, has been um, incentivized to a certain extent with different policies over the year that will incentivize customers to just buy and returns if they don't like it and so on to make it easy and to actually push consum- consumption through the channel. And so it's not that simple to come and, and to change you know, this, this, this consumer behavior and people are used to policies that are very, very easy uh, to return products. At the same time, you have the sustainability component of uh, the overall supply chain aspect, which is um, more and more governments, more and more companies uh, are not and do not want to destroy products. And and in some cases, they are not going to be allowed to destroy manufactured products. So you're going to have to find a way to manage this and to actually either resell or or re-commerce this product or refurbish them and so on. So there is this combination of three factors. It's becoming very big. It's a, a, you, see, you see these trends, you see these external factors that are influencing companies to do something about this. At the same time, um, the return experience is critical for loyalty. 60% of people that have a bad consumer experience on returns will not come back to your website and buy products from you. So that's very important for loyalty. Is that just after one bad experience, 60%? One bad experience. Yes, one by one by experience. Um, so it's critical from a, a retention and for business overall, but it's also now what we see is that it's becoming more critical also from a profitability standpoint. And and the point here is 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 the following: if if um, if I look at the companies that we 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 work with and the ones that we engage with, the conversation in the last couple of years was all about. I want to reduce the cost of returns, right? So I'm going to do a cheaper logistic options. I'm going to focus really on my cost bucket and I'm going to try to improve that. But the conversation has evolved now. Now it's not only about that. That's one part, but more importantly, or the bigger opportunity is actually on recouping product value. So if I can process these returns faster, better, I can refund refund my customers faster. So I get the point on customer experience. But if I'm able to actually, from let's say from 100 products that I'm receiving back, I'm able to push 20 products in premium channel at full product value instead of 10, right. that delta is where the money is. That's where the real money is. It's nothing like in the 5, 20, 30 cents that you're going to save on the parcel return. It's on the product that you can sell full value at $150, versus, you know, a secondhand or used product that you can sell maybe at $40, or if you push it into a liquidation channel, you'll sell it at $20. And if you have to destroy it, it's going to cost you money to do that. Right. Um, and on top of the fact that you're also uh, a creating a, a more problems from a sustainability standpoint. So this is what we, we see in terms of like evolution. Um, and the biggest and the hardest part of this is the return fulfillment is how do you process these returns in an effective manner? You Because the, the processes can be very complex. They are brand-specific. They are product-specific. If you're handling, you know, we handle consumer electronics. We handle fashion and apparel product, footwear. They, they have very different a, a needs and requirements. If you need mm-hmm. to refurbish, uh, uh, you know, consumer electronic device, 
versus if you have to just process, you know, a, a footwear as an example, it's a completely different process skills and yes. so on. So, Nabil, so really quick, nobody sweats on a stereo, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. And, you know, Nabil, talk, you know, kind of going back to your earlier, you know, been there, done that. If anyone, any of our listeners have toured one of those uh, returns processing centers that you kind of alluded to earlier, it is remarkable. You know, a couple of years ago, we had the opportunity of getting out to a major retailer and during peak 300 uh, trailer loads a week is what comes in. And, and, and we had the opportunity to see how it comes in. It is the challenge of processing. And, and to your point, all the different channels involved, all, all the wide variety of products, the wide variety of conditions, all to try to um, protect margin and recoup some of that margin as, as they, you know, what comes next. It is remarkable what our reverse logistics uh, professionals are doing more and more, as we all know, uh, these days in this era of uh, commerce, not e-commerce, but commerce. Um, all right, so keep, let's keep driving. Uh, we're talking about mitigation, some of the issues that, that, that you've laid out there. And then I want to get you to weigh in on the future of where we're headed. Uh, so, so how can we, some of the, some of the challenges on the, on the, the dark side, as Tony put it, or the, the reverse side, how can we overcome some of these challenges? Yeah, so I think um, you 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 have two angles, right? One is um, the technology angle, which is absolutely critical. You know, when you talk about you know that scale that you you refer to, you know, it's the same. We see this, right? You see sites that are shipping hundred thousand, two hundred thousand order, and they get back forty percent of that. You know, so technology in terms of return portal to basically make that experience easy from a consumer perspective, up to the return consolidation, return shipping, visibility of what is coming back into the building, by what date, with what volume you're gonna get, a, the processing of this volume through the warehouse with technology that can help you to automate the inbound, to scan the products, to identify the items, to detect some of the products already from a from a, a visual inspection perspective quickly. Um, the technology is critical into, into how you can actually execute this in, in an effective manner. The second, I think the second big, big part of it, um, and when I talk about the technology, maybe if I go to the second part, when I talk about the technology, it's not necessarily about like owning the technology. We, we take an approach, for example, where we look at a, a proprietary technologies combined with partner technologies in order to really like get the best of breed uh, across these different steps, because it is it is really different type of technologies and different type of needs from you know from a return portal to return shipping to a processing center and then eventually to e-commerce, which is a new sale process a, 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 of the item as an example, you know, into either liquidation or, or and so on. So there are different elements of technology um, that are required, which I think uh, orchestrating. That entire end-to-end is, is, is key. And the second part is the, the ability to actually um, execute these processes. So, for example, one of the biggest challenges in, in return processing is that um, these jobs are very similar to a cashier type of job in the sense that you don't move, you know, if you're a picker in a warehouse, you move, you do different things into the warehouse. So, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's easier but it's, 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 it's um, very different when you do different type of activities during the day 
Then when you are processing at your processing station and you're like processing returns all day long, you're not moving. So these type of jobs are harder in that sense. And they are also, um, they also require a higher level of skills mm. uh, because, you know, if you have someone that's going to have to sew some t-shirts or going to have to fold iron, you know, uh, products, these type of skills are almost closer to someone that works in a fashion and apparel store or in a hotel or in a restaurant rather than, you know, someone that you would have, you know, in terms of profile, traditionally working in a, in a you know, case peak, unit peak, traditional movements of warehouses. It requires like really a lot of attention to detail because these products, they go back, hopefully the highest level goes into premium channel where the experience and the quality needs to be impeccable, right? You cannot have any failure on this. Um, so I think that execution of how do you process this is also one of the big uh, components of, of success. And let alone when you go into like very sophisticated processes, then you need in certain cases to have like very, very sophisticated hiring processes to actually find the people that can actually do that type of work. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you made that last point. Because Greg, if we've been talking about anything lately, it's just, how tough it is to get talent to come into some of these roles across global supply chain. We're just talking about it over lunch. Um, before I ask Nabil about the future, I can't wait till you paint us a picture, Nabil, of what you see as the future for reverse logistics. But Greg, we covered a lot of ground just, just in this last uh, couple of minutes with Nabil. Some of your thoughts on what he's sharing here, Greg. I think prevention and mitigation of returns is absolutely critical. I'll give you two examples. Uh, personal examples. I now have two wine coolers, wine chillers, <laughs> because I ordered one. It French had a wine, seal. French wine, I hope. What, what's that? French wines, I hope. <laughs> yes, of course. Some French wines, yes. Uh, I also love Italian and Spanish wines, too, to be um, <laughs> uh, But it had a seal that could have been easily replaced, even by me, the amateur, um, that leaked in a tiny upper corner of the thing. And instead of sending me the seal, the vendor sent me an entirely new um, wine cooler. Also, they did not collect the wine cooler that they gave me, right? And and it was the driver of the delivery vehicle who was supposed to also pick up, rebox, and take back the other one, who said, they're not going to contact you to take it back. And this happens all the time. And the other example was a sauna. Not, not huge, like a two-person, you know, dry sauna that you can buy online. Same deal. They, they never picked up the old one, which was only slightly defective. They could have also told me how to, how to fix it, and which we wound up doing uh, anyway. Um, but th that is part of the problem. I think prevention is also important. And Tony Sharota from RLA would mm. certainly love to hear us say that. There are so yes. many things you can do in the initial consumer experience to prevent returns, right? Obviously, if the product is torn or missized or, or whatever, there are those difficulties. But there are all of these things that you can do that, that prevent returns that I think we can't ignore as we, you know, as we go into the future of Whatever you want to call it. I, I don't even know if I'd call that reverse right. logistics, but commerce, right? Just just future commerce. All right, so, Nabil, it must be really good to be Greg White. Delicious wine, steamy saunas. Yeah. Uh, man, I'm, I'm all <laughs> jealous. Yes. Uh, I, 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 I was thinking of the same, Scott. You, you know, you, 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 yeah, I agree. 
So I love your earlier points, though, and I, I do want to talk about the future of commerce. Uh, but but your points, you know, execution or orchestration, execution. What's old is new again, just in in a different way, different with different dynamics, but still uh, those uh, common common things we've got to master as organizations and as leaders uh, still remain. Um, so let's talk about the future of reverse logistics or the future of commerce uh, before we get into to, uh, digital transformation. What do you see coming down the pike, uh, Nabil? Yeah, I, I, so I think we are going to see a lot more attention around this. I think, right, your two examples are spot on. Um, I think there are ways, you know, I, I also like to believe that we can do a lot more in prevention, but we can do, you know, so much more. In, in after you know after purchase post purchase experience and it's really one of the areas that that I, I believe um, we have so much opportunity I think for companies there is so much opportunities uh, around this space I think the focus was so much around increasing GMB and just selling that people have completely left this part of the business you know aside in terms of like addressing it one reason also maybe that's more anecdotal but it is important because I think where you are saying like um, you know, how do you prevent this? Um, some companies, they don't even really want to prevent it. Why? Because they still count GMV of even return product. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, there's also underlying financial dynamics that are important to understand. And some consumers also buy products over the threshold of free shipping and then return items. Um, and so, you know, what I say to brands is, Greg is like, yeah, I do that. No, I don't. I wish I had thought of that. That's yeah. another one of the things like uh, bracketing. Is that what they call it? Where people buy like a 10, 11 and a 12 shoe and then send whichever ones don't fit back. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. exactly. I, uh, right. So, so, you know, these are like also, and that's why I, I mentioned the term incentivized. Into, we incentivizing consumer to actually buy more and just return. So I think there's like there's these realities also from the businesses that um, we actually can address. You know, I think the the you know you see some companies are, are changing behavior also. Like Apple, that was not selling spare parts, now is selling spare parts mm -hmm. because they realize that there's a huge amount of business also that is being done on their back uh, through multiple platforms uh, that are now very professional where you can buy an iPhone, you know, secondhand and is, has warranty for six months, one year, and you buy it at half of the price. And so they realize also that they have to be part of this. There is a circular economy vision where I think return is a critical element of that, a linking the dot between a let's start to do something really meaningful. And the first thing we really need to do is to avoid destroying products. Because you can do a green delivery, a, a, a green return, but if you're going to destroy that product, it was useless, right? Mm -hmm. It was simply useless. So this is a fundamental problem that I think companies need to address. I think there's a big opportunity. I, I like to say this is also something that will take off for the simple reason that it's good for the planet and good for the wallets of companies. Is How do you operationalize this when it's good financially and it's good for the environment? usually it's the best combination to make things happen. Mm. The amounts are big. It, it has raised in, in terms of importance. And I think a companies that are addressing that will be also positioning themselves with a bigger competitive advantage than the others. Love it. Uh, if you can make Captain Planet and Captain Consumer both happy, hey, uh, that is where a lot of wins occur. Um, all right. So, Nabil, 
I want to move uh, into the final segment of our, our chat today. And of course, we're going to make sure folks know how to connect with you. But I want to talk about uh, digital transformation, right? Uh, and Greg, we're going to get you to, uh, we're going to loop you in here in a second. But let's start with, we were talking earlier about tailwinds versus headwinds. Any of our listeners know I get those interchanged all the time. Greg keeps me straight and honest. Uh, but headwinds, you know, we've made a, Industry has made a lot of progress um, out of the out of necessity, right? Out of consumer demands, right? Out of other factors, um, uh, common uh, common challenges, new challenges, you name it. But some folks argue we haven't made as much progress as we could. So talk to to that to that end. Talk to some of the headwinds you see preventing as much digital progress, as much adoption of automation as we'd like to see, perhaps in the bill. Yes, so. I think it's it's um, it's interesting because also when you look at the reality around this, it, there's a bit of a different story oftentimes than what you, you can read. Automation provider, I'm not going to mention who, but most of them are backlogged. They are backlogged. Sure. Yeah. The large automation companies are backlogged. They are backlogged six months, one year, one year and a half in some cases. They will not even do an RFP if you don't pay them a minimum amount of money just for them to participate in RFP, that's today's reality. Um, on wow. the other on the other side, you have um, flexible automation companies that are many of them are really really good at marketing and at getting you know videos viral, but that have not yet mastered you know high scale operation in many of the technologies. Um, there are some that have. Right. I mean, we we have, for example, a great partnership with Locus Robotics, as an example. Um, you know, and we work with many many companies. But um, the the point I'm making is sometimes we think it's because the industry is not ready. But in certain cases, there is a bit of that, or there is a bit of a bit of mindset change also around the the importance of automation, particularly at scale, particularly with short cycle time and, and short delivery windows and so on. But it, it is not only um, the industry that has not adopted to the, to, the, to the pace. It is also on the, you know, if you look, for example, at most of the uh, robotic arm companies, uh, AMR, AGVs, companies and so on, most of them are like six, seven years, eight years old. Um, and they are still very, very early into their journey also in terms of maturity of the technology. Um, so I think that's something that is changing. We see really, we really see that have, have that it has evolved. We start to see like very sophisticated autonomous forklift. You know, I mean, we just signed a deal with Boston Dynamic for the auto, 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 autonomous unloader of, of cases. So you start to see now real applications that also financially make sense. Um, and I think we are going to see a huge acceleration of adoption for two reasons. One is COVID has a, just a side of the inflation topic, but just through COVID, we saw, we saw an increase on wages in countries like the US, 25, 30%, and that's not going to go down. And, right. and, and unemployment rate is still a, at the lowest level. So that's not going to go down anytime soon, and it most likely will never go down. So the business case for automation got 30%, 40% easier in the last 18 months. The second thing is industrial real estate is at highest capacity um, and occupancy, uh, and there's not much space. So if you need to increase your throughput, 
you either do a new building or you optimize the one you have. And optimizing right. the one you have is either you build mezzanine and infrastructure or you automate and, and throw more technology into it. And so I think these two dynamics are going to make, you know, the case for automation and digitalization a, take a much faster pace. If also, if all the supply and all the providers can actually really deliver on what their website says. Uh, uh, Greg, Nabil makes a pretty uh, compelling uh, start to the business case, huh? I, yeah, I think I, I think so. And I think, you know, at, at the same time that those factors ha have held back digital transformation, because the question that I hear often is who's going to implement this technology on our side uh, as a as a consumer or B2B customer of, of that sort of technology. Um, the jobs that technology is and automation is taking are, well, I feel like we say this all the time. People are staying away in droves right. from the jobs that most automation is taking. Human beings don't want those jobs, even though they fought for ages for $15 an hour. McDonald's will ultimately be automated, right? Or largely automated. Um, um, because, as you said, as wages increase, they increase, uh, the, they improve the, the business proposition for automation. And frankly, if people really wanted those jobs, they'd be taking them now. So mm. we have to acknowledge, again, that technology is not taking jobs that people want anyway in large, in large um, numbers. So now that varies by, you know, Nabil. 18 countries of experience that varies by country, right? Mm -hmm. But it also, that also adjusts the business case for automation because the countries where people still want those jobs, the wages are still much lower than in the United States. So, mm. um, so there, you know, there's kind of an offsetting factor there, but yeah, I think, I think there is a ton of business case for automation and digital transformation and for computers doing computer things and elevating humans to do, what humans are really, really good at, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, you know, we're going to continue to see that. The economics will always drive that, uh, you know, regardless of, of what we hope to get, you know, unintended, consequ unintended consequences are often driven, almost mm -hmm. always driven by economics. So um, as we make that better case for, better pay for certain jobs, those jobs are more likely to get automated depending on what sort of capabilities they require. Um, so I, I'm curious, as you think about um, digitalization, digitization, uh, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> um, you know, what's been interesting over the course of the pandemic is that as um, e-commerce and other digital initiatives have have come up. Sustainability and ESG initiatives have tended to stay in the forefront at the same time. And I think a lot of a lot of people think of those um, much like they think of network or inventory optimization as uh, a win lose proposition. And I happen to think of them as as you know, rising tide lifts all boats. But um, what do you what do you see or what do you expect as you know as companies continue to try to meet these ESG goals and and meet challenging supply chain demand scenarios? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Greg, you you mentioned something. I just want to make a highlight on this, and then I'll, I'll go to the, to the question on, on sure. ESG. But you, you you mentioned something that is very important because 
Um, investors, when I make these statements around robotic and automation, they're like, well, but Nabil, if that's the case, why we don't see 50% of penetration and we see like five to 7% of penetration in the, in, the, in the warehousing space and so on? Like, because this is not, we are not anywhere soon into a plug and play model. So right. when we go and we deploy autonomous forklifts, autonomous robotics, ASR systems, these things, we have, a, we have a group of solution engineers that are highly trained to do that. And they are, in fact, they are the smartest people we have, by the way. Um, they are the ones that build entire buildings, they do all the calculations, the evaluation of different uh, seconds you're going to win through that process and so on. And that's not something that anybody can do. And that's also something that the robotics company cannot do yet because they just don't have even the resources themselves internally to be able to do it for themselves for the moment. So they cannot do it on behalf of customers. Um, But we will get there. And once we get there, it would be a different story around how quickly can you actually replicate best practices and how can you replicate solutions. Today, it's still highly bespoke and it's still the reason why the adoption is also more complex. Um, Around, you know, around the... The topic of sustainability and, and how do you link this? I think, you know, we talked a lot about the, the gas price increase in the last couple of, of weeks and months, right? To me, that's one of the areas, for example, this is the biggest window of opportunity for businesses to accelerate their ESG strategy. Because, because again, that's the same than the labor story in the warehouses. The gas price is the main criteria after labor in the transportation business, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it is, it, is a, it is actually, if prices remain high, um, it will also accelerate the move towards more sustainable energies. Um, and fleet is not everything, right? Because we also tend to talk a lot about the fleet aspect, but fleet is not everything. Uh, 20% of emissions come from building and transport, uh, um, across all the different modes of, of, of emissions. So buildings are also have a big role. You know, how do you play with lighting, solar panels, recycling, education of people within the warehouse operations around good practice in sustainability and so on. All these, all these um, initiatives, they, 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 uh, they are critical. Now, I think one, one thing that I've seen also is everybody was was talking the nice game around sustainability before COVID. And you could not see that much, you know, when it was the time to pay the bill or to take a decision and so on, you would see very, very conservative uh, uh, moves uh, right. from organizations. And I think this has changed. I think you see now really sustainability. So for example, we run a big RFP six months ago, where it was the first time that sustainability was one of the top three criteria of selection uh, for decision, right? Mm-hmm. In the ranking in the ranking methodology. Mm-hmm. First first time, and that, that was just a few months ago, yeah. Nabil? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, um, top three, right? You will see it, but normally it was number 55, right? Of <laughs> <laughs> the, the selection criteria, it was there. It was number right? 11 in the top 10, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, number 11 on the top 10, it's, it's a better actually uh, uh, a, a case. So, um, now it's now it's it's pushing through, right? Are we there yet? Um, probably not. But are we seeing like the leading companies again that are the one that are the, the trendsetter in the application 
of change, not in the talking about change, um, they are really starting to execute on this. And so, you know, the buildings, we have a very large group of real estate also where we actually build and, 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 and sell properties and so on. Um, you know, most of the requests and what is now being built and so on has a very big component of new tech sustainability into it. Um, you could even say, you know, if it's not sustainable, it's not innovative anymore. Um, that's the that's the minimum premise. People will expect in new buildings to see a, a renewable energies and and lighting windows that allow to reduce consumption. All these things across across buildings as the norm. So, you know what comes to mind as I heard Nabil talk about. Um, uh, the sustainability rankings, for lack of a better phrase, and what he and his team are seeing, and going back, Greg, to our whole returns discussion, and 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 how all three of us were sharing some of our personal experiences. I just wonder how many consumers realize that on some level they're supply chain managers, right? And and Greg, and I'll use use that term loosely for the sake of discussion. But Greg, uh, you know, you had a very well read uh, article. Uh, I bet it's been two years ago now talking about how consumers smack dab in the middle um, play a real active role in how global supply chains act and what they do. And it's just so critical. I know we all three of us can appreciate it, but I wonder how many of our listeners that aren't what I'll call, you know, active practitioners, maybe that they're starting to realize uh, that message and that role and how, man, what they do has a massive ripple effect across uh, what we want to see in industry. Um, uh, Greg, weigh in on that, and then we'll give Nabil the final word and make sure folks know how to connect with him. Greg, your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know that I always say consumers are the beginning and the end of the supply chain. That's right. right? That's the phrase I was trying to remember from uh, that. Yeah. Yeah, we create the demand and, and then we consume the goods. And if you have any doubt whether you're a supply chain manager, have you ever wondered if you're about to be out of milk, eggs, or bread? And if you have, you are a supply chain manager, and what you've done is forecasted, right? <laughs> and then you figure out, like, like I did yesterday, what is the absolute latest I can go to the grocery store and still have milk for my cereal in the morning or eggs for my sandwich in the morning or whatever, right? So, um, Yes, I, I hope that people are starting to understand their role in the supply chain. And the truth, truth be told, sustainability starts with the consumer. We make the decision, right, to, to choose sustainable products or more sustainable uh, retailers. But in the end, I think we've, we've said this multiple times in multiple ways right here on this show, economics drive that. That's right. So we have to figure out how to make economics a substantial part of uh, of the experience for a consumer. If consumers can save money mm. and get their stuff fast, right, and 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 get what they want, then they will do it. Yeah, every single person, mm. every single person. And I have some people who are unbelievably green. I think I've done a great job raising children. I told them <laughs> I'm an I'm an accidental sustainability expert by telling them to turn off the lights in their room and the water in their bathroom when they're brushing their teeth, right? That kind of thing. Well, um, <laughs> but even, even when that's the case, given the choice, they will take a substantially cheaper product over the greener ones. So mm -hmm. we have to figure out how to make that 
economically viable. Well said. Uh, all right. So, Nabil, I'm coming to you for your thought, final thought or your final challenge to our listeners. But before, right before we do, um, speaking of kids, you know, uh, my son feeds our birds. We're big. We're all big bird enthusiasts here at the Luton family. And I try to, I'm trying to work in with him as he's actively managing our bird seed inventory. Right. I'm like, all right, Ben, uh, ben buddy, give me just a couple days' notice before we run out. Right. Let's focus on a two day. Two day, two day heads up. Two day lead time. Yep. Two, yeah, it, it is. It is remarkable to see how they perceive all of that in the simplest terms, you know. Uh, but far smarter than when I was, you know, uh, ten years old. So you never, you never know when supply chain principles are going to uh, pop up in your conversations around the homestead. Um, all right, so Nabil, um, let's do two things here as we wrap up our time with you, and and. Uh, you brought it today just like you did as we uh, collaborated a year or so ago. Um, I appreciate your perspective here. Why touch on a lot of different things. Number one, though, uh, Nabil, give us your final thought, maybe your final challenge uh, to our listeners. If you want to, uh, you know, kind of throw down the gauntlet or, or, or make sure they, if they remember anything or don't remember anything, what's maybe one thing they should take away from this conversation. And two, let's make sure folks know how to connect with you. Uh, and follow you and connect with the DHL team. So let, let, let's uh, start there. Yeah, so I think, um, thank you, uh, Scott and, and Greg for having me. So I think my final thought is, is the following. Don't get distracted. Even if this year we get into a year of transition, uh, going from the, uh, you know, the COVID state to a mall, going back to a regular, I would say, growth path, don't get distracted. Uh, the winners are doubling down in their strategy and they are doubling down in their investments, going after that digital channel and unifying as much as they can in the fastest pace they can. It's gonna, the digital channel is here to stay and it will keep increasing. I think the second thing is we are gonna see more and more focus around profitability. I think there is not a single part of the supply chain that I can see where I'm like, there is nothing to improve here. Everything, every single mode of transportation, every single step of the process. Every time we look into a project, we found areas of opportunities where there is big money that is sitting and that can be actually saved, improved, mm. and so on. I think the, the maturity level still of these very dynamic supply chains, particularly around e-commerce and omnichannel businesses, is really, really dynamic, and there will be so many opportunities uh, uh, ahead. And I think the last thing is, if we look at the unemployment rate and we look at the overall market, there is obviously a lot of concern around the economic uh, uh, situation. But uh, as long as we continue to see strong organizations still employing, you know, and still a very low unemployment rate, we will see supply chains being stretched. We will see that because it means that people are employed, they will continue to consume, and that we will have a lot of work to get done. Um, even if the volumes are not growing as fast as they've been, I think that's okay. Uh, they will go back to accelerated pace at some point. But I think it is an opportunity not to relax. It's actually an opportunity to actually uh, double down and really accelerate through the conversion of these areas also the return example is a very good example of, you know, if your volume is going a bit more under control and more stable, but well, that's the best time to go and attack that return topic, like 
big time and really really solve this. And and you'll see that there is more money sitting there than um, what you were trying to do. You know, maybe with a forward deployment and 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 uh, you know a, whatever initiatives you are working on. So I think it's a time to really look at that. And uh, if you want, of course, to be in touch with me and with my team and so on, I mean, my name is very easy to find on LinkedIn. With my name, you can find me easily on LinkedIn. Uh, my email is also my first name, that my last name, at dhl.com. And I'd be very happy to be in touch. It's just that easy. And, and you know what? We're going to make it even easier, Nabil. On the episode page, uh, we're going to list some of your, uh, your, your social profiles and folks can click on there to follow you, to connect you uh, with you, you name it. Uh, and of course, DHL. So appreciate what you do. And folks, you heard Nabil say it. Got to attack the opportunity, right? Double down uh, because the competition certainly is doubling down on, on winning strategies and formulas. Um, Nabil, really enjoyed reconnecting. I really appreciate uh, all of your expertise and perspective. Uh, been there, done that, uh, that you shared here today. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. See you soon. Thank you, Greg. Absolutely. Thanks, Nabil. Uh, and Greg, a lot of good stuff here with our friend, Nabil Maluli, Senior Vice President, Global E-Commerce with DHL. But hey, Greg, um, you know, as our listeners are processing the last hour, uh, hour or so, what's one key thing? Nabil, we're going to talk about you as if you're not there. Uh, what's one key thing, one key aspect of Nabil's message you think folks have got to depart this conversation with? I'd have to say it is to, to take advantage of this opportunity. I mean, not only has he been there and done that, he's being there and doing that still. And um, in, in times of transition, in times of unrest, right, where there is chaos, there is profit, it, it, it's a good time to stabilize your company if you can't stabilize your demand, which is very difficult right now, as we have talked about. Various industries are up more or various aspects are down more. Uh, but as as Nabil said earlier, still growing, right? E-commerce is still growing. Um, and golly, if you this is the one thing. Sorry, I had to kind of come around to this. <laughs> this is the one thing. If you are not in e-commerce now, what are you thinking? Get into <laughs> it. I mean, at least start that initiative now. Accelerate it. Learn from those who have been there before. Companies like Staples and Amazon and, and Walmart and others that have been in e-commerce for everywhere forever, learn what they've done right and what they've done wrong, and capitalize on this opportunity because it is it opens up literally the entire world mm. to you. Well said. Uh, opportunities abound. Okay. Uh, big thanks to Nabil, uh, his whole team. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation here today. Big thanks to you, Greg. I love having these conversations with you. A uh, big shout out to our uh, uh, wonderful production team, including Justin. Uh, but to our listeners, hey, it's all about you. Thanks for tuning in here today. Thanks for being a part of the conversation. We want to hear your take on what we talked about. Uh, shoot us a note, connect with Supply Channel across social media, and be sure to connect with Nabil. Uh, he is a dynamo when it comes to continuing uh, to share the good news of what's going out there across industry. But folks, whatever you do, you heard it from Nabil and Greg. Deeds, not words. It's time to take action for sure. So on behalf of our entire team, Scott Luton signing off for now, challenging you to do good, to give forward, and to be the change. And with that said, we'll see you next time right back here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. 
Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Now.